Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Welcome to the Soul Sessions podcast. Today, my guest is Fiona Sutherland. Fiona is director of the Mindful Dietitian and lives in Melbourne, Australia. She has been practicing as a dietitian for over 20 years, primarily in the areas of eating behavior, eating disorders, body image, sports nutrition, and education and training. Fiona is a committed health at every size and non-diet dietitian and is specifically most passionate about supporting and educating health professionals to develop insight and skills into working with clients from a body-inclusive lens. She is host of the podcast, The Mindful Dietitian, and a sports dietitian consulting at the Australian Ballet School and National Sporting Organisations. Fiona also teaches across master's level dietetic training programs at several different universities in Melbourne, specifically in counselling skills and weight-inclusive approaches to dietetics. Fiona is a dedicated mindfulness practitioner and yoga teacher, bringing a particular emphasis on embodiment, mindful eating, trauma-informed approaches and body image into her work and training. Hi, Fiona. Welcome. Hello, Jody, and thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So would you mind sharing with our audience a little bit about yourself and I guess your own history with food and body image, if any, and what led you to the work you were doing right now? Yeah, what a great place to start. I grew up in a family where there were particular messages around food and eating and bodies that were pretty strong. As a child that grew up with a lot of body privilege, I was a smaller bodied child and also was quite observant, I guess, and noticed that bodies were spoken about and regarded in particular ways. And to be really specific and overt about it, I noticed that when adults, particularly female adults, gained weight, that that was spoken about from a place of criticism and derision. Mm. And when female adults lost weight, that was spoken about from a, a place of praise. And this I, I found curious and interesting mm. And I definitely internalized those messages myself, even though I was a smaller bodied child. It definitely set the scene for the fact that, you know, as a cisgender female, that this was something specific that women and and girls should, quote unquote, be concerned about and concerned about in ways that framed changes in body shape in particular ways. So weight gain equals a bad thing. Weight loss equals a good thing. Yeah. So it's interesting in, in reflection, Jody, that, um, you know, I come from a family where there are a, quite a range of body sizes. Okay. And even though I grew up in a smaller body, my observation and my internalization of these messages was still very strong, even though my body wasn't necessarily directly criticized, if that makes sense. And I think that what that just goes to show is that the internalization of body ideals, particularly those of us that identify as as women and females, that it impacts everybody and it definitely inequitably impacts those people who grow up in in larger bodies. Yep. So yeah, that's kind of my my family history and then I grew up, you know, enjoying food but not necessarily being a foodie, which might be unusual for a dietitian. I I've always enjoyed food, most notably that prepared by others. Yeah, <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been a little bit more of a, a baker of um, sweet products. I love baking, you know, cookies and cakes and slices and things like that. I've always really enjoyed that for pleasure, but. A regular family dinner is not my um, is not my forte, and nor is it. I would not regard that in the pleasure pile. That's for sure. So I guess what led me to be a dietitian, and I'm going to be really honest here, is that mm. I actually missed out on being uh, on physiotherapy. I really wanted to be a physiotherapist, oh, okay. and um, that's all I had my eye on really um, all throughout my 
teenage years for sure. And then when that didn't happen, I was a bit lost actually for a number of years and then found my way into dietetics a little bit by accident, if I'm, if I'm honest, mm. and then worked overseas for a number of years in clinical dietetics, which is more uh, what would be regarded as medical nutrition therapy for people who are um, inpatient and outpatient, but more in the hospital um, clinical settings. And then came home and, um, you know, what really steeply led me to where I am now is I actually worked in uh, in a weight loss clinic. And I heard repeated stories of um, really of pain and suffering, really. Yeah. And um, I realized then that something was wrong very wrong, actually. Something was wrong with my training. Something was wrong probably with what I was saying. And interestingly, upon reflection, I didn't see that it was my clients that were doing something wrong. I very much put the blame, I guess, on myself. I thought I was a bad dietitian. I just wasn't doing what I was trained to do. And then I can't quite pinpoint exactly what happened, except that I did stumble across Dr. Rick Corsman's book, If Not Dieting, Then What?, which was very formative in my early career, early 2000s, to realizing that actually it wasn't my clients, it wasn't me, it wasn't my training. Well, it kind of was part of my training, really. Sure. But that there was this thing which I came to name as diet culture now, more yep. recently, which was creating and causing all this pain and suffering for so many people. And at the same time, I was actively working as a sports dietitian as well. And I was like, oh, actually, hang on a second. This is not just a problem I'm seeing in this private practice I was working in. This is that people are really suffering all over the place in all different kinds of environments. I was like, oh, right, this is actually a lot more collective than I realized. And that was when I was like, oh, okay, I need supervision. I need training. I need to understand this. Um, so that's when I started, you know, really digging into it. So that's what kind of has led me to the work I am doing now, especially with education and training, because I see it as incredibly important that our future health professionals really more deeply understand their own experience with food and eating and body image. Um, and so we can you know, unpack our biases mm. as early as possible in our careers. So we don't unintentionally then unpack them all over our clients. Yes, and do harm. And it's yes. really nice to hear that you eat cookies and bake because yes. um, we, I know we're going to get onto this topic later talking about carbohydrates, but to hear a dietitian say that is it's a relief. <laughs> and, and also, yes. you know, you were talking about working in a, in diet clinics. And if I had been living in Melbourne, I may well have been one of your clients. So it kind of leads me into my, my next uh, piece around, you know, prior to working with women who struggle with weight and disordered eating and body image concerns. I had a 20 year personal history where I tried every diet going. So I only ever ended up putting on weight, which we know is the case for the majority of people who diet. And like mm -hmm. every other 80s and 90s dieter, I'd joined Jenny Craig, Weight Watchers, lifetime members of both. I'd hit the bookstore for the latest diet books and buying the Beverly Hills Diet, Fit for Life, Scarsdale, Cabbage Soup. And they each had conflicting information about which foods were, inverted commas, good and which were bad jump forward 30, 40 years, and we can't listen to anything without diet talk being mentioned. We've got influencers, wellness warriors, they're advocating for clean eating, plant-based, keto, paleo. Uh, again, conflicting information about what we should be eating. So this has really been going on quite full on since the 70s. So by the time women arrive at my door for therapy or yours for dietetics, that they're overwhelmed by years of conflicting information. They're confused about what to eat. They're over-identified with food in their body. They're exhausted by the internalised food rules. What on earth is going on? I mean, where do we even start? Oh, my gosh. Yes, absolutely. I really love the way that you stepped through that historical perspective there, Jody, because what it really reminds us is that this is not just something that arrived on our doorstep 12 months ago or five years ago. This this is very firmly rooted in um, power systems, very much so. And for any of your listeners that are interested in going back even further, I would yeah. really recommend Christy Harrison's book, Anti-Diet. It is absolutely brilliant and gives us like a, almost a, you know, an early 1900s perspective on how we've got to where we have now. 
but what I really like about your kind of stepping through the 80s, 90s is that what it really does is it paints this longitudinal picture of how we've got to where we are now. And yes, we can kind of roll our eyes and tut tut and have a little giggle about, you know, the cabbage soup diet and, you know, the <laughs> yep. Beverly Hills diet. And we do do that. And we almost do that as if, oh, that's in the past, that doesn't happen now. And that's actually not true. Mm. Everything that has happened in the past has found a new version in the present. Keto essentially is a new version of Scarsdale, <laughs> you know, essentially. Okay. In lots I of, didn't know that. I didn't know yeah, that. in lots of ways. You know, there's like a, a present moment version of what has been done in the past. And it's like we're trying to put all different shapes of peg in a round hole that it never was round and it never will mm. be round, but that this is part of the gaslighting, yep. the gaslighting of diet culture, which has its, you know, it has its roots back 60s 70s and like you say it had this upsurge in the 80s and 90s and what's actually happened now also is that people in your and my age group Mm. we now have kids yes and so it's now this kind of crunch time where parents are like if I don't want to repeat this cycle I really need to understand and unpack how I got to this place so that my kids are not being exposed to what I was exposed about. And boy, oh boy, can I just say, that's a hard task. That is actually a really hard task and it is a courageous task for anybody that takes themselves to therapy or that takes themselves to a non-diet dietitian to say, I need help raising my kids to approach food and eating differently. So, yeah, that's where we start, I think. So there's two things there. I mean, my daughter's... 11 next week. So she's in year five. So this is already going on at school, obviously not with her because we've very anti-diet health at every size, but it's unavoidable. And the second thing you mentioned, the term gaslighting. So I know what that means for our listeners who may not have heard that before. What's your understanding of gaslighting? So gaslighting is the phenomenon where a seemingly innocuous message is given to you Mm. to kind of lead you in the direction of feeling like something is not an issue. Gaslighting more broadly might be like, oh, you know, why are you so upset? Or Mm. like nobody else is reacting like that. Or, oh, no, I didn't say that. Or, Mm. I mean, that's a more broader kind of cultural version. And and the kind of the diet culture version is the kind of the normalisation, I guess, of restriction. Or the normalisation or the use of the word, for example, binging. Apparently, we binge on Netflix. No, we don't. We watch a lot of Netflix. And Mm. actually, binging is something that is highly distressing for people. And we really need Mm. to be careful about, you know, stigmatising something that brings so much shame for people. That's just an example. Um, But yeah, gaslighting is kind of like giving you one message to lead you to believe that you've got it wrong and that Mm. everybody else has, has got it all kind of all sorted and it is everywhere in our culture and definitely the diet industry are the captains of gaslighting. It is and it leaves you feeling like you're going quietly sort of mad. Mad. Yeah. You know when we think about the stories we tell ourselves about food and what to eat and they're they're so ingrained in our psyches many people don't even realize that they have kind of internalized everything that you've been talking about so far and they've internalized food rules. Can you help our listeners understand what some internalized food rules might sound like? Sure. It might be helpful to just reverse the bus here for a moment and mm-hmm. to talk about um, what food rules are, first okay, of all, and then, good. And, and then I'll give you some examples. Sure. So food rules are essentially like a, a term or a colloquialism that we might use that um, kind of encapsulate the good, bad, right, wrong, mm. should, shouldn'ts. The, the kind of the black and white or in therapy world, we might call that dichotomous thinking. Yeah. And the purpose of food rules is that is so that we it's a very normal human experience to want to organize ourselves and to organize our brains and to organize our bodies. And so food rules kind of fits very nicely into this way that we like to have order and organization within ourselves. Um, it fits very nicely with the kind of the body demands and mm. the and the behavioural food eating performance demands that are asked of us, particularly if we relate to being a female. That women are demanded in lots of ways. I was going to say asked, 
No, it's mm. not ask, it's demanded, yep. you know, to be able to eat a certain way and to eat certain foods in particular ways. It's kind of really odd. If we kind of zoom out, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so deeply rooted in power structures and patriarchy. It's kind of scary really mm. in lots of mm. ways. So food rules are kind of the, I, I shouldn't eat that this food is good, this food is bad. And then internalized food rules are when we take on these ideas, the kind of the black and white ideas of good, bad, right, wrong, should, shouldn't. And we internalize them as relating to us. And the impact of that is that when we internalize food rules, it's not so much the internalization of them that's the harm. It is when we feel like we are not conforming to those food rules that it's the impact of how we feel. So a lot of the time we talk about food guilt, you know, feeling guilty that I did something wrong would be guilt. But I actually think I'm just going to take that one step further. I actually think that food rules don't only lead to food guilt they also lead to food shame yeah. and shame is a complete it's in the same family mm. of as guilt of course but it is um, felt by the body in very very different ways you know yes. shame is felt in our bones in our cells and it's something that when we're working with shame it's a, like a completely different ballpark. So there's, this is where food rules lead to food guilt. Well, you know, um, people who feel guilty about things usually aren't necessarily going to end up in your and my office, Jody, are they? No, Whereas um, people who feel shame, yep. they're people who are going to be ending up in our office. So Yeah. And we're talking about shame is when you say guilt, it's I've done something wrong. When someone feels shame, it's I am wrong. Yes. There's I am some, bad. I'm bad. There's something wrong with me. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. So will you help me? I mean, this seems quite obvious to me, but to a lot of people listening, it's not. Will you help me clear up some food myths? So is there such a thing as healthy, clean or good foods and unhealthy, dirty or bad foods? So hopefully what we just explained about dichotomous thinking or that kind of black and white good, but hopefully that sets the scene for this kind of particular topic. Yeah. Um, I think what happens is when we sink into the mud pit that is feeling like there is one right way of eating, yep. then we're almost, this sounds, I'm going to link it with the gaslighting. It's almost like we've internalized the gaslighting that has been served up to us on a plate. Mm. It's a really good way of putting it. You know, so it kind of links together what we first talked about with gaslighting and then the internalization of food rules. And then it's almost like those two things get mushed together. Mm. And the, the truth is there is no one right way of eating that holds the exclusive claim of yep. optimal health yep. for everybody. That's a truth. That is an absolute truth. Mm. And that so many of the factors which either lead us in the direction of health or ill health are completely beyond our control, completely beyond our control. And we don't like to hear that. People are listening right now thinking, but I'm spending all this time controlling my food. What do you mean? (laughs) It's deeply painful. It's actually very, very painful to hear that we can do everything that we've been led to believe we quote unquote should be doing and like bad shit can happen to us. Yeah. It's really painful for us as humans. It's like really challenges everything that we believe about our own existence. Yeah, I'm speaking to my colleague, Kate Motherspoon in a few weeks' time, and she is going to be talking about grief and loss around issues like that, how, how we need oh, to. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah which yep. is it's really big. And I think what a lot of people are trying to avoid, you know. Yep. So... Kind of along the same lines. I mean, you know, I lived in London for most of my young adult life and in the mid to late 90s, I was in an office where 90% of the women were on the Atkins diet. And I I guess you could call it the first 
uh, well, actually, now that you're saying the Scarsdale, it may not have been the first high protein, but certainly in my sort of knowledge, it was the first high protein wave. And we've progressively seen this gain momentum with the paleo and keto diets. So I've seen young women for therapy who have been raised in home where carbs were not even allowed to be kept in the house. So they've pretty much been brainwashed to think that carbs are, are bad, which is, you know, what we've just been talking about. And girls in my daughter's year five are already saying, I don't eat carbs. And in a now infamous scene from her documentary Homecoming, a dejected Beyonce reports, in order for me to meet my goals, I'm limiting myself to no bread, no carbs, no sugar. So <laughs> poor, be- poor Beyonce. <laughs> I know. <laughs> when I was researching for this interview with you, I came across an article by Dr. Joshua Walrich, which said, we have a problem in the scientific community, and that problem is identity. Low-carb has become part of one's identity with the rise of low-carb doctors and low-carb dietitians. So first of all, what happens to someone's, I guess, freedom of choice around food when they are over-identified with a certain way of eating? Oh, this is a great topic. All right. So I completely agree with Joshua here. And it is something that I've seen rising up in actually more recent years, I've got to say. Yeah. You know, more broadly, I might name myself as a health at every size aligned dietitian or a non diet dietitian, but that's to signal. That's to signal to somebody that I am somebody who might be safer than others. I would never claim to be safe because I don't think that's possible to be completely safe for anybody. Um, But, you know, I'm kind of signaling to say, you know, I'm doing my work. I will continue to do my work and I will put every effort into this being an environment Mm. which feels like we might be able to do some work together. Yeah. So when Joshua says, you know, we have a problem in the scientific community and the problem is identity, I I think that is just an absolute ripping comment. Mm. And I think that what happens is, especially with the social media, people are pretty keen to hang their hats on something and to be known for something. Yes. The only problem that I see is what happens is when people change their mind. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. They change their mind and realize they were wrong. Yep. And this is happening all the time. And do you know what I don't see, Jodie? I don't see apologizing. I don't see apologizing. And that really, to be honest, it really bothers me. If you realize that you have potentially done harm by hanging your hash on a particular way of identifying, or you have written a book, for example, or spoken extensively, or developed a whole company around a particular way of eating, and then you realize that actually maybe Mm. you were wrong, Mm. um, or that maybe your own mental, physical, and emotional health has suffered Mm. as the result, then you know, this is part of the problem is people people are like, oh, no, now I've changed my mind. You know, this is really important. I obviously can't say what it is, but at the height of a, a certain program, I must have had at least four or five of the staff come to me for eating disorder treatment. And so there was this message being sent to the world and on social media around a certain way of eating being exactly what we're talking about and but yet behind the scenes there's a whole lot of disordered eating totally going on and but people scrolling through Instagram do not see that they just see this identity and the messaging and even if we go back to um what's the woman's name is it Bill oh Bill Gibson with the she claimed to have brain cancer that's right and presenting this way of eating to sort of help people but actually that's not always the whole story It's never the whole story. Yeah. And I see, you know, kind of hanging our hat on a particular thing as as not only unwise, Mm. but I think for some people in some situations, actually downright dangerous, really. Yeah. But in the current era, as 2020 would have it, Mm. apparently we need a title and we need an identity and that people are really partnering with particular ways of eating to kind of, I feel like it's almost a claiming of space in a way, you know, which really from a community perspective, I get it. It's enticing. It's, Mm. it would be really enticing for people to say, well, I'm going to be listening to this particular doctor, dietitian, wellness 
person, yoga teacher, whoever it is, because that's a person whose values I and ethics maybe I relate to. Mm. And we cannot ignore that in a lot of circumstances, it comes with appearance as well. Absolutely. So, just recently, I noticed there was a, a doctor who is hanging his hat on a particular way of eating, and then his website has shirtless photos. And I'm like, <laughs> um, sorry, what? <laughs> if you enjoy going to the gym or taking a top off, that's absolutely fine. None, none is so none, none of my business. Mm. But on a website, are you serious? If this has got nothing to do with appearance, then you should be fully dressed, my friend. I'm sorry. Well, also what this says to me, you know, thinking about identity at a deeper level, it's around, it's sort of presenting a false self a lot of the time. It's not actually coming from a true self. And there's a whole lot of, I know once I start unpacking this in therapy with people and also my own journey, I need to fess up that I've been vegetarian for 30 years. There's, and I've done a lot of work unpacking that identity and there's definitely sort of levels of belonging in there there's levels yes. of better than I mean I even yes. I remember back in the in the early 90s leaving a restaurant because my mother ordered veal you know so there's uh. around separation and it goes very very deep but what people aren't seeing or they're not really getting all that they're just seeing this this is somewhere to belong and identify with. And, you know, like you said, it can actually be quite dangerous, I think. So, well, at the end of the day, Jodie, that's actually all we want, right? Is all we want is to feel connected to mm. others mm. and to have a sense of belonging. But unfortunately, you know, joining together, I mean, again, we keep coming back to this gaslighting mm. idea. Mm-hmm. We've kind of been gaslit into this, like you said, this false sense of connecting or this false sense of belonging, which it's not rooted in doesn't have deep roots. Mm. The roots are really shallow. You shake that tree, it's going to fall down. Whereas, you know, the the deep roots of connection are built uh, from, you know, places of vulnerability and places of deep insight and understanding our own fears and being willing to take, you know, to be courageous in the face of difficulty. Mm. So, like I said before, I get it. People Mm. really want to feel like they belong. And sometimes belonging to, for example, a vegan community or low carb community or even an athlete community for example yep. it gives us the same feelings yeah but it's yeah. not the roots are not deep yeah necessarily absolutely so i mean it feels like we're coming back to something quite practical here after quite a deep discussion but you know when people arrive at our doors they are very much on the surface with this stuff so i guess I mean, I've had people say, well, would you feed your children a donut or would you give your kids sugar? Yes. Or and the answer is yes. And yeah, <laughs> I, I actually, I remember sitting there thinking, what the fuck? Of course I'd give them a donut. Why wouldn't I? <laughs> is that? Um, but, you know, and I get asked that all the time, all the time. So please clear up for people who, and we've already had the discussion about good or bad, so we kind of already know the answer to this, but are carbs bad for us? No. No. Do they contribute to weight gain? No. Okay. But but that's not what the internet says. Uh, the internet kind of twists all kinds of things, you know, to say there are so many things that contribute to body changes. Mm-hmm. So if we distill it down to do carbohydrates contribute to weight gain? Mm. I know I gave a very definitive no there. Sure. And actually that probably wasn't fair really. Uh, but what I'm saying is that if we're going to be talking about, if we're going to be a little bit more expansive and kind of take weight gain out to a more realistic changes in body shape and size Mm -hmm. does nutrition have some contribution well sure I mean what kind of percentage contribution for a vast majority of people tiny 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 trauma stress genetics hormones age life experience an injury an illness changes in medication changes in life circumstance loss grief I mean I just named up to 10 things right there it's like well sure changes in changes in exercise changes in nutrition well I've just gone through menopause so I'm thinking about that too you know right so there yeah (laughs) so it's not just about the food and also you know even even if it was if you were only eating donuts then you know that might be that's going to be a health issue obviously but you know I'm hearing of people even sort of restricting 
whole grains and like yeah. not eating rice and not, not even eating yeah but they'll eat quinoa because it's it's high in protein but you know and I guess fruit and vegetables when you say oh, are you eating carbs oh yes I'm eating fruit and vegetables mm. I mean are you eating carbs carbs <laughs> well um, the thing is okay let's take a look at this yeah so when we say carbs, what we're talking about is carbohydrates. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, that's that's being kept and obvious there. Yeah. But we're talking about nutrition science here. So, my year three child, eight mm. at eight, last week had a quote unquote nutrition lesson. Mm-hmm. By the way, P.S. Teacher got an email and a phone call. Oh, good. I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> the teacher's like, "Oh, that's right. I forgot." Here she goes again. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, she she was actually fantastic. But um, they were trying to teach them about carbohydrates and protein and Mm. fats. And I was thinking to myself, they're eight. No child of eight needs to learn nutrition science. This is for 15 or Mm 16-year-olds with very specific context. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about carbohydrates, it's a massive food group, like a massive, it's not even a food group. That's Mm. not correct, actually. Food groups are fruit, vegetables, meat, nuts, the actual foods. Whereas this is nutrition science, carbohydrates is in actually a vast majority of foods, really, in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And is a dominant feature of some foods, like, you know, our grains and and fruits. Yeah, there's a stack of foods which it dominates, that's for sure. And is it in our best interests to have that in balance with other nutrition sources? Sure. Yes. Absolutely. Alongside other foods? Absolutely. Yes. But I'm not going to sell a book on that. No. If I named a book, carbohydrates are not the enemy. Incorporate (laughs) these foods along with other foods um, that you enjoy. Mm. Eat regularly. Eat enough. Mm eat a variety of foods, I'm going to sell five books. And, you know, even in therapy when I say pretty much that to people, I always kind of feel like because people, obviously when they come with eating issues, they've like I did when I went to therapy, I knew, well, thought I did, knew everything about everything. I sometimes (laughs) almost feel a little bit like, is that enough? Like I'm being judged because obviously I've come up with something so simple here that I didn't even come up with. Um, and it's almost like clients look at you and sort of think, Jody, this isn't what we're hearing out in the world. Don't you know the science behind this, the evidence behind it? And I guess yeah. that's something else I didn't ask you beforehand, but I mean, I know from the studies that I've done for every bit of evidence that says this way of eating is the best, there is the a- absolute opposite is also true. Absolutely. And that's because of what I said previously, and that is there is no one way of eating Eating, that has the exclusive claim. It's just everybody is different. And that is the truth. Everybody is different. And the ways in which our body feels its best, remembering Mm. that this doesn't mean where we necessarily are going to be feeling awesome all the time. Fatigue is a thing. Mm. Experiencing um, mental health um, concerns or feeling like we're we're finding our mental health difficult then I mean that's that's a human experience as well so Mm. it's not just about physical health it's also about mental health and I think that the way in which we think and feel about food and the internalized messages that we have around food and eating that it can make or break our mental health I really I do see that in my work for sure yeah absolutely and so when someone is restricting and look, it could be anything, restricting anything, but, you know, we're talking about carbs. So if, if someone is restricting carbs, they inevitably end up binging on them. How come? Well, uh, part of it is the psychological nature of saying I can't. Yep. I can't have something and our brains are wired in a way that says, well, really? Mm. You sure? And so we begin, begin to get um, quite preoccupied with, with finding and sourcing the, the, the very thing that we can't have. There's that, which is kind of the, the psychological nature of it. And there's the, sure. the physiological nature of it, which is that our body relies very much on a source of carbohydrate, as it does with protein as well, and fats, or all of them. It's not just about carbohydrates. But our bodies cannot tell the difference between food insecurity mm. and intentional restriction. Yeah, our bodies okay. can't tell. So it's like, 
there's food, there's a high energy food that's going to get the energy, just the pure calories and kilojoules in that I need to survive. So I am going to eat that food and probably going to eat a lot of it because actually I don't know when I'm going to to Mm. get it again. So I think what that does is really letting that land that our bodies do not know the difference between being in a food insecure situation when food literally isn't available to us and the intentional withholding of food. I think that what what that does is invites us into a new place of compassion for ourselves and that our bodies are absolutely they're just doing their best they're Mm. they're just trying to survive like it's being designed to survive so binging is just a result of us wanting the best for ourselves which sounds so odd to people Well, well this is really fascinating because and I'm not sure when this is going to go to air but when we look back to the beginning of coronavirus and I went to the supermarket and I didn't really know what was happening I went to buy pasta and there was no pasta on the shelves. And then I, I think it was my husband's birthday and I went, you know, around to get flour to make a cake. Flour. There was no yep. flour. I thought, oh, what, God. what the fuck is going on here? And then I realised people were binging on the flour and the pasta. And, and I actually couldn't believe my eyes because I thought carbophobia has taken over the world for the last 15 years. Why are they the, these the first two things, apart from toilet paper, to fly off the shelf? And it kind of sort of fits in a little bit with what you're talking about when we don't know the difference between food insecurity and I wonder (laughs) what the link is there around. Yeah, well, there are a ton of people, even though um, Australia is a first world country, there are a stack of people that do exist in objective poverty throughout this country Mm. but then also remembering that even those of us that have got enough to eat these days that we can go to the supermarket we can afford a wide variety of foods we've got regular income these days but maybe we grew up in an environment of food insecurity remembering that if we were restricted of food as a child our body internalizes that as you didn't get enough to eat so again Linking that back to what we were just talking about, our body cannot tell the difference and Mm. and it almost imprints in us, you need to get more, you need to make sure that you have food. And so people who, even if they've got plenty, I mean, as in, you know, they've got the resources, the financial resources to afford food, if we grew up with food being restricted because maybe we had a parent that was quote unquote concerned about our weight and thought we should be eating less and, 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 you know, um, and made comments or, or actually withheld food from us or hid food or said you're not allowed to or mm. you can't possibly be hungry or all of those mm. really harmful things that a lot of people have been exposed to. Or maybe we grew up in a family where we were one of however many children and it just wasn't enough to go round. Or that maybe, I mean, one of my yep. clients was just telling me recently, um, you know, she's now in her 50s and she was like, she grew up in a farming family and she said that they lived so far from the supermarket that they only shopped, I think her mum shopped once every two weeks or something. And there was mm-hmm. almost like this fortnightly binge restrict cycle in the family where at first there was like the full pantry full fridge empty pantry empty fridge full pantry full fridge and she was and she's only recently been like oh my goodness I've just had this ongoing cycle this binge restrict cycle Mm. because it's mimicking how I grew up and you know this is really important and and it's something I want to lead into in terms of how we heal from all this but um there was a very popular infographic going around about people hoarding and binging and buying all the food around how they were in the the not very aware zone or something and and it really Mm -hmm. it actually pissed me off for this (laughs) I've got to say because for me it was like you've got no idea like for many people it would have been a trauma response to totally and to class them as being selfish selfish or or, yeah yeah. unaware no I completely with you completely with you it's actually I made me cry several times to witness not only witness like the video of people Mm. um you know actually there was just a news report and you could see somebody actually having a like a dorsal vagal shutdown response in a supermarket aisle and I was thinking can't anybody see this person is shut down they're yeah they're having a shutdown response they're not oh my god I just got so frustrated I agree it was made me cry several times just witnessing the judgment yeah. So when we think about moving forward from all this, for people who are struggling with anything that we've been talking about today, and 
how do we begin to heal our relationship with food and body? And from your perspective, what do you see as the first steps, I guess? So when we're looking at the pathway forward, I think we we need to remind ourselves that we haven't grown up in a world that has encouraged us to get to know ourselves and our bodies. Mm-hmm. We've grown up in a world that's encouraged us to fix our bodies and to do things to our bodies as opposed to be alongside our bodies. So that's the first thing that I would invite, you know, listeners and, and any of us to kind of be remembering is that we have not grown up in a vacuum where we've actually had free choice. And we've had consent over things. We've actually experienced a lot of non-consent when it comes to food and eating and diet-related messages. And when we've been literally swimming in this pool for so long Mm. that it feels weird to hop out of one pool and then into another, it's going to feel weird at first because we've been so immersed in this culture and certainly you know for somebody that comes to see you Jody, mm. they can have that you know that respite for an hour when they come yeah. and see or however long you see somebody um they have that respite and they're like man this feels like an alternate universe mm. but then part of the skill uh, skills we develop is needing to then go out and live out in the world so i think the first thing to do is to is to really offer ourselves deep and genuine compassion and understanding that we did not bring this any of this upon ourselves it was actually done to us in a non-consensual way now and for a lot of people like we spoke about before the loss the grief the anger, the Mm. sadness. I see a lot of sadness, actually. Um, Anger and sadness often oscillating, actually. And if you are experiencing oscillating anger and sadness, please do know that this is a very, I don't really love this word, but it's a very normal response. Very, very normal response to starting off this relationship because we're starting to really peel back a lot of the layers that we have um that we've placed to protect ourselves yeah you know that's all we're doing is we're just trying to protect ourselves we're trying to belong we're trying to connect all these are from such a a really beautiful and um, genuine place in us and what happens is that in protecting ourselves, we actually then start to start to silence ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. So deeply hearing ourselves does require um, a willingness to be vulnerable, a willingness to start to feel. And for a lot of people, as you know, Jodie, as a therapist, starting to feel is really scary. It's really it frightening is. It is. because we think, oh my God, if I start to unpack this, is everything going to unravel? Is everything going to unravel? And so that's why it's so important that if you do want to do this healing work, that you do do it if it's accessible to you, that you do do it alongside a therapist or somebody who really can stand by you and help you form like a container for yourself and for your own experience. So that's the first thing is that deep well of compassion have somebody who can stand with you and be prepared. And be prepared re- for it to be not easy. I really love that because it's really non-pathologizing. You know, a lot yeah. of the time, obviously, in the health and wellness industry and, and medical uh, sort of model, it's, it can be quite pathologizing. So mm-hmm. uh, I really love that that compassionate approach. I think we have to because yep. for a lot of people listening, you might be thinking, well, that's nice, but if I treat myself with kindness, then I'm just going to let myself off the hook. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to do all the things. I'm going to eat all the things. Yeah. And look, maybe that is some people's experience for some period of time because, of course, when we're like, you can do whatever you want, we actually do love that. We're like, yep, oh, yep. I can do and eat whatever <laughs> I want, you know. But that's why working alongside somebody who can help create a sense of safety and containment for you so that you can reassert boundaries. Mm. You know, boundaries are different than rules, of course. We can expand and contract our boundaries as opposed to rules are like you do it or you don't do it type thing. I mean, boundaries to me, I remember our um, my husband and I 
couples therapist many years ago said it's about being um, sort of on patrol, you know, taking care of yourself and protecting yourself rather than being controlling and controlled by rules. So it's, I it's love actually, that, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. And so how does someone, um, so when they go to see someone, you mentioned earlier around non-diet and health at every size. Now there's a lot of, what do I say about that? Uh, what does that actually mean for people? So people are thinking, folk, how can you be in a big body and be healthy? What do you say to people about, I guess, finding someone from a health at every size approach? Well, I think that if you are looking for a dietitian or a therapist who on their website self-identifies as being health at every size aligned or mm. non-diet, I think that regardless of who you choose, it's like um, I really encourage people to shop around, make that phone call, ask the questions, mm. ask things like, you know, can I inquire about training you've done or how we might start our work together? I encourage people to do that because if you're going to be unpacking some pretty deep stuff, you want to make sure that that person, you want to make sure that they've done their work. So in Australia, there are hundreds now, hundreds of dietitians who have done specific training in non-diet approach mm-hmm. and who continue to engage in their own professional uh, reflective supervision, which is, I believe that's compulsory for, for yep. you know, dietitians, even though it's not actually compulsory, I believe it should be. So don't hesitate to ask questions about people's training. One of the kind of the, I guess, some red flags might be if somebody offers, for example, mm-hmm. if somebody kind of self-identifies as non-diet or, or health at every size, but they also offer weight loss services or weight management services, that's a red flag because they're kind of trying to be everything to everybody. And I would ask people, if you're going to be signaling safety to people, you need to be safe. You need yep. to not be confusing with people. Yeah. The other thing I just wanted to be really clear about is that, of course, it would be really uh, usual that somebody might want to heal their relationship with food and eating, but also mm. might have strong desires to lose weight at the same time. Yeah. And so I just want to really send this message to people and saying, we get it. Mm. And a non-diet dietitian is somebody who you can have that conversation with. We are not going to ignore that desire. Yeah. We are not going to dismiss it. We are going to listen yeah. because it is incredibly important that anybody who wants to heal their relationship with food and eating and their body is heard. Does that mean that we're going to put you on a shake diet? No, absolutely not. But what it does mean is we're going to listen and we're going to have that conversation, not to try and change your mind, but for the purposes of listening because you deserve to be heard. Well, also, if that was me coming to see you, you heard my diet history earlier. It just doesn't work and it's exhausting. And I think people deserve the right to, for the dietitian or the therapist or whoever to really put this person's health first and their psyche first, rather than jumping on, you know, I know what you're talking about. I see it all the time, people offering weight loss. I was looking at someone for a guest the other day and they were, I thought, oh, this all sounds really good. And then I clicked over to the next page and it said, weight loss, blah, blah, blah. I thought, oh, are you kidding me? That's kind of, <laughs> so no, hard no. Yeah, exactly. So now um, our time is sort of starting to run out, unfortunately, but I wanted to touch on something quickly before we end. I know you're an advocate for intuitive eating and we talked a little bit about self-compassion, but I know that you, well, I didn't realize until I started researching for this interview that you've trained in yoga. And I just wanted you to touch a little bit on maybe how yoga can support people in their recovery, I guess. Yes. So this is something that's really become very close to my heart. In terms of, you know, healing our relationships with food and eating and with our bodies, we're really talking about healing our relationships with ourselves, really. And I use a plural selves, being that, you know, there is no one Mm. part. We are multiplicities of parts and that we are kind of I know this sounds a little bit crass and crude, but in a way, we're kind of a bunch of flesh walking around in the world so much, you know, that has been, you know, the representation of this body that we have has been, it's become so much a part of how we define ourselves. And Mm. yoga, as long as it's not, 
oh god yoga there's so many problems in the yoga community power yoga oh my god yeah (laughs) so we don't even need to go down that in our limited time that we have together Mm. but what yoga invites us to do and yeah by yoga I don't necessarily just mean asana asana is the movement side of yoga but then um, there's other parts which is values breathing meditation self-reflection and insight oriented awareness there are lots of different parts of what we call quote-unquote yoga and asana is actually just one section of it another part is philosophy you know in, in history so the asana or the movement side of yoga invites us into a new and curious and compassionate way that we can be alongside ourselves and be alongside this body that we have from a place of um, genuine curiosity, I guess, Mm -hmm. and genuine accompaniment and partnership as opposed to being in, like not competition with, but being, uh, what do you say, like in conflict with. So rather than being in conflict with our bodies and trying to have a power over relationship with our bodies, yoga is this beautiful vehicle. There you go. That's what I'm looking for. It's like a vehicle to develop a different relationship with our bodies. Does it in and of itself heal body image? No, I I don't believe so. But I do believe that embodiment and Mm. thoughtful trauma-informed yoga is very powerful vehicle where we can learn to accompany and be in partnership with our bodies in new and different ways, which are really beautiful to observe, actually. Really, really beautiful. That's just the perfect ending, really, isn't it? It's like coming home on the front page of my website. It's got come home to your true self, but it's also around coming home to your body, isn't it? Yes. We've been estranged from them you know, for most of our lives, I think. So, you know, it sounds like a wonderful way to come home to that. So, yes. So, look, we've run out of time and there were so many other things I wanted to talk about, but that'll have to do for today. Will you share with our listeners? I think you've got, you've got an online course, haven't you? Or a couple of online courses, I think. Would you share them with our sure. listeners and how sure. they can find you? And also the link to, obviously, I'll put all this in the show notes, but where they can find your podcast. Sure. Absolutely. A vast majority of my offerings are are geared towards other health professionals. So regardless mm-hmm. of whether you're an exercise professional or a dietitian or a therapist or whoever, um, I do offer some freebies on supervision and, and mindfulness um, yep. and, the, and the point of being present when we're working with others to short courses to much, much longer courses on eating disorders uh, for specific populations. And I also have co-authored uh, a, quite a long course on body image with Marcy Evans, who is based in the States which I love I am very proud of that course actually mm-hmm. oh, gosh the number of hours that went into that was um yeah, uh, extraordinary yeah so there's that and and my podcast and everything you can find on my website which is www.themindfuldietitian and dietitian is spelled d-i-e-t-i-t-i-a-n.com.au so that's where you can find me and I do play around a lot on Instagram again at the mindful dietitian Yes. And I was going to say that you've got quite a good following there and um, lots of really great tips for people in terms of, um, you know, really reshaping, I guess, all the all the things we've been talking about today, food rules and self-compassion. And that's, yeah, on your Instagram. So who are you at You're the Mindful Dietitian on Instagram? Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming along today. I've really enjoyed our discussion and I think this is going to be so valuable to the women out there listening. So thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Jody, for having me. This was super fun. My pleasure. This is episode six of the Soul Sessions with Jody Gale. The show notes for this episode are at thesoulcenter.online forward slash Soul Session 6 Fiona Sutherland. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.